My, hello, my name is Eliana, and I will be reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Again I looked and saw the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed and the of no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who already died are happier than living, who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy to another. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Good morning, my name is Grace. The scripture reading is Ecclesiastes 9, 2 through 12. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after they go to the dead, but he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy has already been perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go and eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let garments be always white, let not be oil lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the with wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor flavor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all, for man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, like birds that are caught in a snare, so that the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You may have that over there. Why don't we give Eliana and Grace a round of applause? Didn't they do great? <laughs> and a passage to have wonderful children read. My goodness. Uh, <laughs> if I don't know you, my name is Gabe, and the surprised look on my face is just hearing that passage read with these wonderful little voices. 
Woo! That just brings a different weight to it. Um, I'm Gabe. I'm one of the pastors at Christ Community. I serve primarily at our downtown campus. I'm the downtown campus pastor. And it's my joy to join us in this Ecclesiastes journey that we have been on next week. You're going to have the privilege of hearing associate pastor from the downtown campus, Ben Beasley, continue through the journey as well. And it is an absolute gift to be here with you all this morning. So why don't we begin now with a word of prayer as we enter in after hearing God's word read over us, okay? King Jesus, we gather together as your people, citizens of heaven, belonging first and foremost to your kingdom that is to come, and declaring our allegiance to you and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, we come as your people, gathered together, longing to hear afresh from you to give us the declaration and the guidance of our lives in every aspect of our life. You are our Lord. You are our Savior, and so we declare with our mouths and believe in our hearts that you are Lord and that you have risen from the dead, and so when we come to the wisdom of Kohelet here in the book of Ecclesiastes, we want to have ears to hear how the Spirit of God has been at work. This is not a book to avoid. This is not some word long forgotten, but God, we believe because when you have spoken, you continue to speak through what you have said that you have something for us today. May we have ears to hear. May we have eyes to see. May we not harden our hearts to the truth of your word as it speaks to us as followers of Jesus today, empowered by your spirit. We need you. Thank you so much, God, for Chance and his leadership and the whole team here guiding us through the songs. We do ask, Lord, not just singing empty words, but that you would give us vision as we've sang that we would see the world through your eyes. With the blind spots we bring, we need your word to constantly bring correction and repentance, knowing that in the death to ourselves we have life. So would you do that? Would you, as a good friend does, strike us towards correction and growth? Rather than coming merely to experience comfort in the ways that we already presuppose we should go, would you guide us towards the way of life, which is so often the place we don't want to go because it feels like death? God, help us. We need you to grow. We know even if we are followers of Jesus, we are stubborn, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So would you help us? Would you meet us here afresh? We expect you, God. We anticipate your work. It is in the name of Jesus, the one who is indeed seated at the right hand of God, the Father who reigns now, whose spirit carries forth his will for those who are willing to yield rather than quench his work. May that be true of this community. May that be true for each of us and me as I preach today. We love you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Man, I felt like I was preaching in the prayer this morning. Here we go. Uh, and then welcome to everybody who's on live stream. I, I'm so glad that if you're joining in and you went to the lake or you had an illness or you have dynamics in your life that you're unable to join us, I'm so grateful you're able to join us through technology today as well. And here's where I'd like to begin. I want us to look back to August 28th, 1963. It was one of the largest civil rights gatherings in the United States history. Over 250,000 people across races gathered together for the march on Washington for jobs and freedom. And who was at the center of so much of what was said but the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
Many of you know his speech, I Have a Dream. You've learned it in school. Some of you may even have it memorized. But amidst what he said, he said things like this. We refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds and the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. That, of course, is anchored in the biblical narrative. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we'll be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, Free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. And at that moment, if you've seen the videos, if you've listened to the recordings, people cheer, right? Because our hearts long for this, especially if you know the biblical narrative. This is wrapped up with so much of what God has promised he will one day do. And there was change in the air. The problem, though, is that in a world where dreams are possible, so are nightmares. Where one is made available, so is the other. And as much as we may know or many people proclaim the I Have a Dream speech, which is what is much less known is an interview that Dr. King gave less than four years later on NBC. It was May 8th, 1967, and it's online. You can go check it out. But someone full of so much hope, so much optimism, so much desire to see what was promised come to reality Less than four years later, this is what he has to say, amidst other things. I must confess, that dream that I had that day has in many points turned into a nightmare. Less than four years after his I Have a Dream. A lot of, not, a lot of people don't know about this particular interview. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. <laughs> I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years, and I would say over the last few months, I've gone through a lot of soul-searching and agonizing moments. And I've come to see that we have many more difficult days ahead. And some of the old optimism was a little bit superficial. And now it must be tempered with a solid realism. I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go. He even says in this interview that many people were willing to stand alongside of him for the battle of decency, that people of color would be seen as equal. But to be treated as equal is when he began to experience great opposition. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was someone who was called, who was convicted by the biblical witness of justice for those that were often not offered the same level of justice in the context in which he found himself. But you can hear, and just four years later, after a high point, he found himself in a valley and he was weary. And then it was less than a year later after this interview that he was murdered here in the United States, assassinated. Alongside of, frankly, many others who continue to speak towards justice here in the United States. In a world of dreams, the reality is the nightmare still reigns for many. And it was just a couple weeks ago that the shooting in Buffalo, New York, 
also came out were a gentleman driven by white supremacist ideology, a demonic framework that dehumanizes people made in the image of God, went into a strip mall and took the lives of many people specifically targeting a black community. And I say it's numbing because when we hear that, and especially in light of just what happened this last week, we hear another mass shooting. That's the phrase we have now. Another mass shooting. This isn't something that's a rare occurrence anymore. We've become numb to the injustice and the obliteration of other human beings made in the image of God. And we see it pop up again. And this is just the news that makes it to the news. There's a lot of news that isn't quote-unquote sensationalist enough. Injustice and brokenness and death that litters our context. But it never makes it to our ears. So when we come to the words of Scripture, the Spirit of God guiding, yes, even Kohelet. In chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we read it again. Again, we can resonate with this. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Now, I know some of these words, oppression, oppressor, oppressed, power. I mean, they sound like a postmodernist thinker, and yet they're right here anchored in our scriptures, guided by the Holy Spirit, no less. This is not a text we can discount. If we want to hear what God has to say, don't go jumping to particular political ideologies and how you're now going to go to the scriptures and discount what the scriptures have to say to us just because it sounds like someone that you may not agree with. We need to hear what God's word has to say and shake up our categories maybe just a bit and say, God, what do you have to say to us today? When we see and experience the brokenness of our world again. And frankly, it's frustrating because it feels like nothing seems to work. I was telling you the story of someone who, who, who was great in terms of movement and guiding and bringing together the unity of all, and yet he was assassinated, and that was how many years ago? 40, 50, 60 years ago. And yet the injustices continue on. And we, we battle against it because right here in Scripture, we see the reason why. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, we have this eternity hidden in our hearts. And what is that? It's not just the idea that will never end. It's the kind of life. It's actually not only looking forward, but it also looks back. The life we were designed for back in Genesis 1 and 2. These very desires to actually cultivate God's good world and to make it better. We were designed to be these rulers of his world to actually continue out his work. And so when we see the brokenness of the world, we feel the very DNA which we have been imprinted, being made in the image of God, to go and say, this, not, this ought not to be. And, and how do we make this right? And we wrestle. And even Kohelet here is wrestling with it. It's like I see people with power crushing the people who don't have power, and I see it again and again and again. It's almost as if they had been better if they weren't born. And then finally you get to the point where you feel his wrestling, where he thinks to himself, why, why even work toward justice when it feels pointless? Now, the moment that question is raised, which is what Kohelet's wrestling with here, Someone here may agree too much with that statement. 
thinking of Jesus where he says, the poor you'll always have with you, and you'll say, see, we can't do anything about this. So we just got to go into our silos and live a private, quiet life. There's something to that. But don't look at the rest of Jesus' life as he actually actually goes along the poor and he feeds over 5,000 people who deserved nothing. And yet he meets their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. And then there are others of you who are too dismissive of this. Where we think to ourselves, Gabe, I know these are a bad couple past weeks where we've seen just untold injustice and brokenness and pain. But we don't need to go that far. I mean, come on, Gabe. This is the classic opportunity for pastoral overspeak, right? Well, I think if we're going to listen to Kohelet, this wise leader who's wrestling through the absurdity of life as we are meant to, we need to sit in the weight of this. And there's a heavy reason, really, that's unpacked throughout the whole passage that was read brilliantly in chapter 9, verses 2 through 12. That we come to see, and it's anchored really well for us in verse 3. We have this feeling that if you try to do something, if you try to make the world a little more equitable, if you try to exercise justice, if you care for the vulnerable, or you seek that, that, that there might be a community that experiences flourishing, and yet you have this upsetting reality that those who are doing really well and those who are doing really poorly, they have the same outcome. Look with me, verse 3. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. What's the event? And that's what I love. He does not give you a very positive picture of humanity, that if we just get education, everything will be okay, right? It says, also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. That language, evil, is sinister. So constantly thinking of ways to bring misfortune to others. That's what that particular Hebrew word is. Madness is in their hearts. While they live, this language of madness is often used of drunkenness. So this thoughtless engagement where you're just acting insane. And after that, they go to the dead. And the dead means the dead. Okay, so that one's pretty clear. Um, The end result for everyone, whether you've been righteous or whether you've been wicked, whether you've uphold justice and sought the good of your neighbor, or whether you sought to demoralize your neighbor for your own gain, the same outcome for both is death. And he's wrestling through this. It doesn't feel fair. There should be a different outcome for those who are actually seeking to care for others and live right within God's design compared to those who are actually taking the very life breath from others in order to bring comfort to their life in the short term. But yet, both die. And here we find one of the greatest difficulties in pursuing justice this side of heaven is that our justice work won't eradicate the ultimate reign of death. And for some, this is where the claim goes, why do we polish the handle on the sinking Titanic, right? Why do we do any of this? You you might be coming alongside of someone, helping them now finally get a new job to have an opportunity to be able to serve in the community and have human dignity and good work well done to build capacity to care for others, and then they get cancer, and then they die in two years. And then you think to yourself, why do this at all? I'm extending all of this energy. Well, in a way that I really feel called to, and yet it keeps getting cut short by death. And that is where Kohelet's wrestling, the great enemy of death. Why even work toward justice when it feels pointless? You know, this is why we've entitled our series through the book of Ecclesiastes, 
life up in smoke. Just a little t- tidbit for you. Um, if you've ever tried to make sense of this, you're like, Kohelet, Ecclesiastes, like where do these things go? Okay, actually in Hebrew, the book is called Kohelet, and the Greek translation of Kohelet is Ecclesiastes, and we have the transliteration in English. So a translation actually brings a different word. A transliteration just uses English letters to bring the same sound of the original word, okay? So if you're wondering how Kohelet and Ecclesiastes fit together, there you go, if you followed that. All right, my fault. Uh, that's not anywhere in my notes, but I just found it really fascinating. You're like, why is it Ecclesiastes? What does that mean? It actually means Kohelet, fascinatingly enough. And Kohelet here, his goal is to show us that if we put our hope, if we put our value, if we put all of our eggs, in essence, into the basket of life under the sun, you're going to find yourself wanting, longing. It's not going to meet your needs. But how he goes about it in his processing is really fascinating. What I love about Kohelet is he's very countercultural, I think, in the ways that we often think about leadership today or wise folks. He begins very vulnerably. He starts with his failures. Do you see that? Again and again. I chased this down. I thought it was going to give me what I wanted, and it was just vain. I chased this down. I thought I was really smart in pursuing that, but it was just vain. I chased this down. I thought this was, everybody had told me that this might be it, so I chased it down, and I was the best at it, but it was empty. Failure, failure, failure. He leads with his failures. He asks a lot of questions, and then every now and then he gives you like a little glimpse of an insight. (laughs) That's how he's processing, and he's bringing us on a long journey. That's why I know that this is an older gentleman, because he's not in any hurry to get anywhere, okay? One of my favorite memories, just as a uh, young kid, we had these, this, this couple, well, actually, they were brother and sister, who lived in our neighborhood. I was about 11. It was Sonny, uh, was his name. And I used to go over to his house. He'd play eight-track tapes. Huh? And then we'd play chess, and he would complain about life. It was awesome. <laughs> I loved it. Um, but nobody else hung out with Sonny. But it was a joy to be able to just be with him. And he would ask me sometimes questions about God. And here I am, an 11-year-old, talking to a 72-year-old about faith and I think this is right, and, but I love Jesus, and you did not move a correct move in chess. Like, it was great, right? And that's where I feel like Kohelet is. He's this older gentleman processing all the different paths he's pursued, and he's taking us on this long journey. And what I also appreciate, and some of you may be wondering, it's like, Gabe, we just jumped a lot around Ecclesiastes. I thought this was a place that preaches through books of the Bible. Here's what's true. When you're walking through Ecclesiastes, it's highly poetic, and because of the way he's processing He's all over the place and also on a track at the same time. Let me ask you this. When you're sitting down across the table from somebody drinking coffee and they're going through something in their life, do they go through a logical movement of the process of their life? They're like, oh, A led to B, B led to C, and C led to D. Do you see? And you're like, yeah, that's great. No, it's like this over here, and then it was this over here, and then that. But that brings me back to this over here. That's what he's doing. He's inviting us in the processing of the vanity of life under the sun. And so instead of preaching four sermons on justice, which we easily could have done, we're preaching one. We're going through the themes of Ecclesiastes. And he comes here with some realism rather than optimism over the brokenness of the world, using language that, frankly, if you were to use in some religious communities, you'd be kicked out. Oh, did he say oppression? Did he say oppressor? Oh, power? Like, no, 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 no. This is scriptural language. And he goes raw and dives in. And he's doing something through this whole journey. So here's the sneak peek. Over and over again, this is very Jewish, by the way, 
um, in terms of Jewish meditation literature. He keeps saying, now if you choose this, then life under the sun is meaningless. If you choose this and you pursue this under the sun, then it's meaningless. If you do this and you engage life under the sun, then it's meaningless. Till finally you're like, well, okay, but what's over the sun? He doesn't say it. He gets you to get there. This is like adult learning, professional move, and also just great Jewish thinking and the way that you walk walk in through your scripture. Sometimes some of the best insights in scripture are what they're pushing you towards rather than what they say explicitly. And that's where he's going. He's getting you to think of life over the sun. What's there? And here's where he gives us a little bit of hint specifically on this. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Verses 16 and 17. And now you're going to find two Hebrew words. So we're going to brush up our Hebrew together just a little bit. You're going to find the word mishpat and sadakah. So say mishpat. Yeah, that's not what you're going to eat later for Memorial Day lunch. uh, But mishpat and tzedakah. Let's try that again. Tzedakah. You're Hebrew professionals. Way to go. Okay. So these particular words are two kinds of justice that are throughout the biblical text. And these two Hebrew words are across the Hebrew scriptures, and they're anchored here, actually, in these two verses, Ecclesiastes 3, 16 and 17. Look with me. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, mishpat, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, tzedekah, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart... God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So for the one who hears God's heart for justice and actually sees themselves as belonging to God, but yet wrestling through the intensity and the reality of injustice in a broken world, Kohelet holds on to this bedrock truth, and it's this, that one day the ultimate judge will make his point. It may feel like justice and the work towards justice is pointless, but one day the ultimate judge will make his point, where he will judge both the righteous and the wicked. And actually, he gets this because if you just pick up the book of Ecclesiastes and read it on its own, you're not going to get the full weight of what is happening. You have to read Ecclesiastes with the bedrock foundation of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He's doing a lot of processing after what God has given through Moses for his people and thinking through wisdom. How is the wise life in accordance with the revelation of God? And what we see in Genesis 1 is after God creates by the very breath of his mouth, the very world in which we find ourselves What is God's first verdict over all of his work? It is, it is good. There we go. Yeah, that's his first verdict. It is good. Then he creates man and woman. And what does he say? What's his next verdict? It is very, yeah, very good. He's acting as judge over what was just created, declaring what is true. Then that first human couple decides, you know what? I love what you've made here. Those trees are in great spots, but I think I need a little bit of wisdom on my own. This looks a lot more desirable. I don't think I'm enough with what you've given me, so I'm going to take this. And in that, God gives a verdict over all of creation, and it is therefore what? Cursed. And death enters into the human story because of the brokenness of humanity. And thorns and thistles break up. And this is where we get the word toil that's all over Ecclesiastes. It's work by the sweat of your brow that includes suffering this side of heaven and also this side of the fall. God declaring his verdict over and over and over again. And whether you like it or not, you will live in the consequences of his divine verdict as the rightful judge. 
And he's, res- he's wrestling through this. He's thinking about this ultimate judge. Because God is concerned about justice. Now, those two terms I had you mention earlier, mishpat is rectifying justice. Okay, rectifying justice. What does that mean? It's setting wrongs to right by punishing wrongdoers and caring for victims of injustice. That's what we often see in court cases. Hey, you were wronged, and you were uh, the one who did the wrong, so now you're going to make it right. We believe in that as a society, and where that's anchored is actually in who God is and how he goes about the world. Tzedakah is more primary justice. It's often translated righteousness or rightness. It's living in such a way that renders rectifying justice obsolete. Campus pastor Reed Kappel, I know he's preached here a couple times, out at our Olathe campus, he came up with a really good illustration. He said, mishpat is the work of referees, so think of football, referees, flags, and penalties. Righteousness is playing the game with integrity, skill, and respect where flags and refs aren't needed. Right? And anybody who loves to watch football, you're not going to see someone step out of bounds and be like, you know what, we all step out of bounds. It's the way it goes. Just play on. No! If you're on that team, you're like, call it! Call it! Bring it back 10 yards, right? (laughs) You feel the injustice of that if a play is called wrong. And because we live in a broken world where brokenness also lives within us, we need mishpat. We long to live a life at tzedakah, of righteousness, of primary justice, but because of a broken world, we need rectifying justice. And that's what... Kohelet is longing for here as well, because here's the deal. God will exercise his justice. Now, in Ecclesiastes 3, without the lens of the resurrection, there's a little bit of ambiguity as to whether Kohelet means in the future or in the present, and we're meant to feel the tension there, because sometimes God's justice does break in on the present, and sometimes it waits. The Apostle Paul says as such in 1 Timothy chapter 5, when he's talking to Timothy, his protege, he says, some sins are revealed now, right? But some will not be revealed until the judgment, but they will be revealed. It was also right after he told Timothy to take a little drink of wine because pastoral work can be crazy. But that's another sermon for another day. I just love the Bible because if you go to the Bible and you're expecting something that's completely irrelevant and just like makes me feel good in my heart, you are not reading the same book I am. Like this is impacting my day to day, friends. And God's justice, it's a good thing if you are God's person. Because what we find, let's think about another moment of God's justice reigning here on earth. We see Israel being oppressed by Egypt, right? This is language that would have been common for the people of Israel. A powerhouse, a a nation that was the leader in the world at the time. But God's justice reigns down on the false gods and the injustice. Those two tend to go together. Idolatry, injustice, and immorality all are coinciding. If you find injustice, you better believe you'll find idolatry. If you find idolatry, you better believe injustice will be there too. But God's judgment reigns down. And it demoralizes Egypt, not just spiritually, materially, financially. It obliterates their whole military force. But Israel, the good is Israel's liberated, and they know the freedom that comes. Now, the question when we start going into this, and this is where it gets real tricky, is we start to say, okay, 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 okay. God is a God of justice. We see that across the pages of Scripture, and he longs for holistic justice. But based upon what will God judge? Based upon what will his justice come to bear? And at one point, we may say to ourselves, well, if we just say the right things, 
If I can just virtue signal enough or give the right theological speak, then I'll be okay. Then we find ourselves in this weird, like, am I always saying the right things? And a constant anxiety, which is not from God. Because when he meets us, he brings a peace that surpasses all understanding. Or we might say, well, if I just do the right things, if I show up for the right causes, or if I show up in this space in the right way, if I can just do the right stuff, then I'll be okay. And that form of legalism was led out by the Pharisees, these religious leaders who said, you just got to do, 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 do. And it became a deeper yoke that brought a greater sense of oppression. The key marker, and this is like me taking a pastoral sidestep to help you understand the broader biblical framework of judgment as we are walking through Kohelet and seeing God's work in the world. We see that God judges based upon whose you are. That is the key marker. Here's why. Because if you belong to him, whose you are will shape what you say. Whose you are will shape how you show up in the world. Whose you are will shape how you see others. If you belong to a particular political party, it'll shape what you say. If you belong exclusively and first and foremost to a particular group in our city that ostracizes others, it'll shape the way you see others. But if you belong first and foremost to Jesus, it's going to shape the way you show up in such a way that you know when it's okay to be silent because your whole identity isn't based upon saying the right things. But it'll also give you courage to say the hard thing when it might cost you everything else. If you belong to God, then it'll allow you to show up and do something that may indeed, as we see from many of our brothers and sisters across across the globe, get them imprisoned and lose their lives. Or it may cause you to stop and say, you know what, I'm trying to do something to justify myself, and this is the kind of helping that actually hurts people, because I'm doing this more for me than I am for them. So it allows you to go about healthy practice. And what the rest of the world wants to do in polarizing us, you start to see bridges to build. Whose you are is the key defining marker. This is why God comes to Abraham in Genesis 15 and says, walk before my face and then behold, right? Come experience intimacy with me and I will make you whole. This is why when we look across the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was not a mere transactional agreement. Hey, I've got this stuff. Will you take care of this stuff? You can have my stuff if you can just take care of my stuff and then I'm going to go about my way. No, no. It was always about a relationship with him. Even throughout the Hebrew scriptures, come and be mine. Be my son, God would say of Israel. Belong to me and let me be your father. And the sacrificial system was a way of dealing with injustice or unrighteousness in a way that the relationship could continue on. Same way with the gospel. When God comes to die on the cross, it's not just to give us goodies, but to keep the gap of separation. It's instead to deal with the stuff that's separating us so that we can be one with him. It's always about whose you are. And those who belong to God are passionate about justice and mercy. We see this in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has shown you, O human, what is good and what the Lord... Think about that Genesis language, what is good... And what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Those three components together. And that's not just an Old Testament thing. You go to Matthew chapter 7, out of the mouth of Jesus, we see in verses 21 through 23, Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, so they call Jesus by the right title, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, what does that mean? On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we do all this religious stuff for you? We prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name. All the stuff that smells like you're around. And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This doesn't look like lawlessness. This looks like religious activity. But it was about whose they were, not just what they did. You go to Matthew 25. It's very clear there. There are people who are saying, hey, the sheep and the goats, the final judgment. Some people think, you know, hey, I don't even understand why I'm getting accepted into this thing. He goes, listen, listen, listen. When there was someone in need who was vulnerable around you, you gave them something to drink. You met with them. You cared for them. When you did that, you did that for me. And then there are the goats who are like, hey, hey, wait a second. When did we turn you away? And he goes, you don't understand. Every vulnerable person that's around you is the same thing as if I were there. And the moment you turn them away, you're turning me away. You don't know what I'm about unless you belong to me because that was what I did to you. You were the vulnerable one and I took you in. And if you don't understand that, then you're not mine. Whose you are is the crucial component. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that on the cross, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, if you belong to Jesus and he has the say over who you are and how you show up in the world, if he is your Savior and your Lord, no matter where you go, his grace is sufficient and his justice has been satisfied in Christ. So let me ask you, who do you belong to? I mean, Kohelet's been exploring this, right? If you belong to pleasure, if you belong to money, if you belong to your work, if you belong to status, you will oppress, you will extort those around you, sure, in micro ways, because we're not all the worst people in the world, but we'll do it in such a way just to get a little bit more of that, even if it takes a little bit more of them, whoever them is to you. If we make those our beloved, I've got to have a little more pleasure. You'll extort somebody in private in order to get a little more pleasure. If it's about money, you'll cheat a little bit on your taxes, undercut maybe one of your employees, steal a little bit from your employer to get a little more of your beloved. But do you belong to God? Because if you belong to God, it'll shape the way you release money when you feel like you need it to survive. It'll shape the way you allow others to be celebrated because you don't always have to be in the limelight in your work atmosphere. You'll actually be a person who's looking for the ones that are often overlooked because that's what God did for you if you belong to God. So what do we do when working towards justice, so God's purposes in the world, when it feels pointless, and yet we know that the ultimate judge will make his point. What do we do? Well, we keep or we don't turn away from just work. We don't turn away from just work. There's really three categories to this, okay? The first is to keep your eyes open. If you look at chapter 4, verse 1, I think a key word that we can quickly overlook because it's the first one is again. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions. He doesn't close his eyes to the brokenness of the world. Again, I see it. I'm looking at it again. 
We can sometimes lie to ourselves and just say, you know, I'm going to close my eyes because I can't change it, or I'm going to close it, my eyes, and that's going to bring me peace. But the reality is closing your eyes will not bring internal or external peace. None of that will. You can't just close your eyes to the world and live an escapist life. The Christian life was not meant to be designed that way, and it does not bring wholeness, neither to community nor to you. Secondly, not just keep your eyes open, but keep naming the pain. Chapter 4, verse 1, he keeps naming that there is oppressions. He keeps naming that there are oppressors and the oppressed. We see this across the Psalms as well. These are real categories for real life, but the reality is in some situations you may find yourself here, and then in other situations you may find yourself here. But we have to keep naming the pain. We actually see this across the Psalms as well. The majority of Psalms, when we gather together as God's people, yes, we praise our God, we thank Him, we honor Him, but simultaneously we come naming the pain. This is called lament. It's the majority of the Psalms written for the people of God when they come to worship God. Where are you, God? (laughs) How long will you forget me forever? How long will the wicked succeed and the righteous experience suffering? This is the language of the Psalms over and over and over and over, bringing the pain, naming it before him, and then ultimately entrusting it to him. And not because, okay, I entrusted it to him last week. I can't do it again. No, that's not the way relationships work. Why would we expect it with our Heavenly Father? And if you think that's the way relationships work, that's probably why people aren't calling you back, okay? Like, there's some dynamics here in terms of cyclical realities of forgiveness, releasing, vulnerability that are important to human relationships and our divine relationship with God. Keep naming the pain. And then lastly, keep working where you can, while you can. Look with me, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. There's a little bit of sarcasm in this, but there's also a nugget of truth where he says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, or do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. What has God given you to do today? He's calling you to go about that work in the limited frame we have every day in the work he's given you to do. In some places, that's paid. Some places, that's unpaid. Maybe that's in a relational sphere. Maybe that's in a conversation. Maybe that's through the ministry partners we have as a church. How are you showing up? Giving what you can where you can where God has you, knowing that one day the judge will make his final point. Even if, even if it's not what you thought it would be, you'll be comforted because you know you belong to the one who declared it. Even if you're seeing other people lifted up and you're not in the limelight for once, you can celebrate because of what God's doing in his justice. A place where the first are last and the last are first. A place where the lion lays down with the lamb. A place where God's justice kisses his righteousness. And in the end, when we come to the end of our life, what he's entrusted us to do in this moment, in this window of our time under the sun... He will say in some small way we had a part to play in what he's doing. Because listen, you'll never hear a pastor, at least you shouldn't, hear a pastor say, we're going to change the world. We can't. God can. And he will one day. But here's the beauty. Here's the beauty. He's invited us to play a small part in what he's doing. You see that again and again throughout the biblical narrative. God doesn't have to. Like that, he could change it all. But instead, he invites us to say, I've given you this to do. 
You get to be a part of what I'm doing. And one day we will be able to celebrate with him and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. So wherever you're at, whatever God's called you to do in this space and in this time for his purposes, don't give up. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness towards us. We thank you that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, and we also thank you that you are a God of justice, that you care about what is right, that you will make wrongs right, and that you've made an avenue for everyone who's willing to humble themselves to experience the joy of mercy through Christ's sufficient work on the cross. May we, as God's people, be agents of your justice. May we never come with categories of the ends justifies the means. May we never step out of bounds seeking to pluck the apple of the earth, saying desperate times require desperate measures and seek to discount your word in order to bring about our purposes in our time. But instead, may we trust in you. God, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. And may the wisdom of Ecclesiastes slowly saturate us and shape the very day in which we find ourselves. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit and all God's people said, amen.